Welcome to the Vine Life Podcast. We're a church in Manchester who love Jesus, each other and our city. Catch up on this week's message and more. It is my privilege to be continuing our Open Hands series this morning. Um, And before I get going, I want to share a bit of a story with you, if that's okay, as to how I landed on what I kind of wanted um, to bring this morning, which ties in Amazingly, with everything that God has been doing and saying through worship already, like, where's Hannah gone? Thank you so much for sharing that. What a powerful story. What an encouraging one. Um, and I think what God's put on my heart mirrors some of what, you're, um, what you were experiencing too. So I'm excited for what God wants to do today. So I mapped out the bulk of this talk towards the end of October, actually. Never mind the last week of preparation. I, I usually have longer uh, to think about things so um it was towards the end of october and i was walking at wernerthlow anyone know wernerthlow yeah it's a beautiful place it's like being in the peak district only it's much closer so it's low on fuel but like big on countryside views here it is isn't it beautiful and so it was as you can see this lovely autumn sunny morning towards the end of october It was a Friday, which is my day off work. I dropped the kids off at school. So I thought I had this time to go for a walk and just spend with Jesus and ponder what I might share today. Only what this picture doesn't tell you is what happened in the hour before that was taken, uh, which is less idyllic. (laughs) And in the hour before that was taken, um, I actually had a different plan for my morning. So um, my Fridays start in a very, very repetitive way because I am a creature of habit. I drop the kids off at school and then I head to the gym and then my day carries on after that. And so that's what I was doing in my gym wear, driving over to the gym because it's not close enough to walk, not because I'm extra lazy because that would, that counteracts the gym thing. Um, But as I was driving there, I had this, um, I had this urge to pull over safely and as I stopped I suddenly realized I had zero desire to go to the gym that day Um, and I thought actually it's such a lovely day I'm going to go for a walk and happily there was a McDonald's ahead of me and so I thought I'm going to go and get a coffee because actually McDonald's do reasonably good coffees and I'm also going to pop for a wee because ladies no one wants to be caught needing an outdoor wee that's just the reality so I thought take that opportunity Um, and so I did so this plan was forming nicely drove into the McDonald's went in and what was planned to be a quick dash in and out turned into a 20 minute visit to the McDonald's toilets and it's not because I'm about to share some bowel related story you'll be pleased to know Um, it's a little sadder than that actually because as I sat there I suddenly became overwhelmed by emotion and I began to cry and cry and cry for 20 minutes in the McDonald's toilets. And have you ever had those times where you're so overcome by what you're feeling that you can't quite bring yourself to move? Have you ever had those times? Oh, Ruth, you're looking so sad for me. It gets better than this, I promise. (laughs) Um, That was my experience. Fortunately, the toilets had just been cleaned and there was like a fresh replenishment of the toilet roll. So actually, as, as the situation goes, it's not as bad as it could have been. Um, but as I was sitting there, not quite managing myself to get up, um, I felt Jesus 
had brought me to a place of recognizing something that I had been working, unintentionally working pretty hard to leave unacknowledged. And that's that I wasn't actually doing okay. And to bring John into this, because <laughs> you said I can, nor was he. Neither of us were. And I did manage to get out of the toilet, and I did go for a walk. And on this walk, I felt Jesus showed me something of what had been going on in my heart, in my responses, in how I was managing things that had got me to this point of actually becoming a bit immobile. And then I felt him spill hope into those things too. So that's what I want to talk about today, if that's okay with you all. And it is going to link to our Open Hand series shortly. Um, because these last couple of years have been hard on so many levels. And I'm sure all of you have stories of hardship where it's felt overwhelming. You see, for John and I, these past couple of years, um, it's felt like pretty significant parts of our world have come crashing down. And there are no shortcuts. By the grace and the mercy of Jesus, we are believing that he is the one that's rebuilding. But it's slow and it's complex and it's tricky, both circumstantially and relationally. And we're by no means alone in it. Many of you are woven into the same story in different ways. But for John and I, our resilience and our determination to keep on going in some of these areas was being stretched in a way that I had never known before. And we're not there yet. And I don't even know where there is most of the time. <laughs> Although that is okay, because Jesus is the one that is leading. And so perhaps as you sit here today, you have your story too. It might not be the same as my story, or maybe it is, I don't know. But you have your story too that's held challenge and difficulty. And experience tells me that... Um, the stories which work together to make up life, like they, they rarely finish neatly in a predictable time scale and in an orderly fashion, which if it did, would really suit me very well for my personality type. But that life isn't like that. And experience also tells me that in most of our stories, we have times of waiting. Waiting, we're just waiting. Can you relate to that? Seasons of waiting. And waiting isn't an inherently negative aspect to our stories because there's waiting that is full of joy and of hopeful anticipation for what's to come. But there's also a type of waiting which is acute and painful and in sharp focus. And that type of waiting can be heartbreaking because it doesn't come with signposts to the destination telling us how long the wait is going to be, which direction to keep on going in, how much further is to go. And waiting doesn't also, despite the word, equal inactivity. For John and I, these last couple of years have been some of the busiest of our lives. Some, although probably not all is fair to say, productively so, as we try and like sort of move towards the things that we're waiting for. But still the waiting remains. Waiting for resolution, waiting for breakthrough, waiting for circumstances to change, waiting for clarity waiting for reconciliation, waiting for healing. Many of those aspects of waiting describe mine and John's story. And maybe they describe yours too. And this type of waiting can feel overwhelming, can't it, and disorientating. 
And in an effort to manage it, we might find that we start leaning towards less helpful practices to manage our waiting. And, and uh, Dan, you're going to help me in a minute. Dan Brown, Dan White, you're good. Dan Brown. <laughs> it was Dan White, but we've swapped Dan's. Um, Dan is going to help me illustrate what I mean here. And these things that Dan is about to uh, build for us are things that Jesus talked to me about as I was going on my walk around Wernerthlow. So they're um, things that I very much identify with. Are you ready, Dan? Yeah, great. So some of the things we might do. Well, we might just uh, minimize what we're experiencing or dismiss it in an effort to... um, Hold on a minute, Dan. In in an effort to downplay what we're facing or to put on a pretense that we're doing okay. Something else we might do would be to magnify um, any challenge or difficulty or perceived failure as our perspective becomes skewed and we become consumed by that thing. We might withdraw from trusted relationships and trusted friendships, not knowing how to show up around those that we love and who love and know us. We might become narrowly focused on things within our control in an attempt to feel forward momentum in one area to counteract the frustration or the the pain um, of waiting in another. We might become disproportionately driven and performance-orientated as we try and find a sense of self-worth through our own achievement of often self-made standards. We might default to being on fight mode where people experience the spikiest versions of ourselves as we engage with defensiveness or attack. We might negatively compare ourselves, especially to those who we perceive are experiencing breakthrough in the very thing that we're waiting for. Or perhaps it's something else. You can build a way down. Perhaps as you're sat there thinking of your own stories of waiting and your own ways of responding, you can identify other ways that you can build to try and manage your waiting. And in doing this, as Dan is so beautifully showing, thank you, Dan, we build a wall around ourselves, a wall of protection, a wall to try and cope, to try and cope with uncertainty, to try and make things feel under control. And more often than not, what this wall does is we build it around ourselves, it causes us to become hidden and isolated, where we perhaps relationally remove ourselves from those around us, or we emotionally withdraw. And of course, these behaviours, thank you very much, Dan, by the way, these behaviours of how we can relate to others can also be reflected in our relationship with Jesus, can't they? I so often find the two are interlinked. (laughs) And we lose our rhythms, perhaps, of resting in his presence, of stilling ourselves before him, of listening to his voice, of reading his word, as we busy ourselves with the noise of life or get swallowed up in in the vastness of what is absent. Have you ever felt like that? We stop acknowledging what's going on within and we stop talking to him about it. I know I'm painting a really bleak picture. It is going to get better because, because of Jesus. But all these things, they can work together, resulting in us being people who are increasingly closed. Like, can you see that? If we... If these are our uh, ways of managing, we become closed people, closed to Jesus, closed to one another, as we try and manage as best as we can. And that's what I feel Jesus wants to address this morning, is what he's been addressing in me, and I think the invitation is there for all of us too. 
So in the context of our Open Hands series, I know this is a very long introduction, but I'm hope hopefully I'm setting the scene so you're with me in this. We're, we're, we're exploring at the moment, aren't we, aspects of what it looks like to follow Jesus as our open-handed king, as described in Philippians 2. And so I think the invitation is there for us today to ask ourselves, what might it look like for us to be people who are open-handed in times of waiting, if difficult waiting, open-handed to him, open-handed to one another, instead of our hands getting busy building our wall? What does that look like? Okay, are you with me? Can we pray before we carry on? Probably for my benefit mostly. Um, you might want to just put your hands out in front of you as that posture of open-handedness. As Holy Spirit, we say, would you come and show us that you're here, that you continue to be with us. I thank you for what you have been speaking about already this morning. Would you come and lead us and would you come and guide us? Would you help us to know that this is a safe place because it is with you? We want to have open hearts before you, Jesus. I thank you that you are with us and that you are here. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so we're going to explore... Um, open-handed waiting in, in two parts today. Staying open-handed to him, if that's a helpful picture, arms up, and staying open-handed outwards to one another. And we're going to spend most of the time about thinking of being open-handed to Jesus. Um, and the open-handed to one another is actually going to touch a lot on what Neil Hudson was sharing at the weekend away, for those of you that were there. Um, we're going to open our Bibles shortly. And as you look through the pages of scripture, you don't need to search hard to find stories of waiting. It's there almost from the very, very beginning. And at the weekend away, for those of you who were there, we focused, Neil focused on the end of Luke's gospel. And we're going to turn to Luke's gospel again this morning, only this time to the start of it. But before we do, let's just remind ourselves the kind of overarching narrative that we're, we're inserting ourselves into as we open, open up to the gospel of Luke this time with the lens of waiting, because it is a theme, a strong theme. So it is at broadest level, the Bible starts at creation, where God creates a beautiful garden, which we're told about in the book of Genesis, our first book of the Bible. And his image-bearing humans who are created to co-rule and steward God's good world then participate in the ruin of it and in the ruin of their relationship with him. And the whole big narrative arc from that point on is about how God will bring about a new creation, a new heaven, a new earth, where all is healed and restored in every way imaginable, as described in Revelation at the end of our Bibles. And so within a couple of pages, the waiting has begun, the wait for restoration the wait for reconciliation. And the first chapters of Genesis have this huge universal focus, but from Genesis 12 onwards, the narrative changes to become, becoming about one man and his family. So Abraham and the family which come from his line, the family of Israel. And God is setting in motion this long-term plan to bring about a new creation by somehow using this one man and his family line to restore everything to all nations. Yet as we know, time and time again, as we read the Hebrew scriptures, the type of human needed falls short. 
Noah, Abraham, Moses, Joshua, David. They all provide us silhouettes of the type of human needed, but none of them quite fill the picture. And then the prophets come into play. We've got Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Hosea, Joel, Amos, and so on. And they accuse Israel for their lack of faithfulness in the waiting, but they give hope that God is still set to bring about this new creation. God will send a king, a king from the line of David, who will lead Israel into true faithfulness. And the Hebrew scriptures, so our Old Testament, they come to a close. And the waiting is still going on. Centuries have passed, yet the waiting continues. And then we turn the page and we find ourselves in the four Gospels, introduced, amongst others, to a young woman named Mary. And we're going to focus on her a little bit this morning because she is a wonderful example of waiting whilst remaining open-handed before the Lord. And since we're currently in the season of Advent, it feels appropriate, I think, to look at waiting through the eyes of Mary. And so Mary, along with the rest of the Israelites, has been waiting for this promised king. And in the first chapter of Luke's gospel, we read that she receives the astonishing news via an angel that she, with seeming impossibility, will have a son whom she should name Jesus. He will be the one who completely fills the silhouettes provided in the Hebrew scriptures. He will be a deliverer, a redeemer, a restorer whose kingdom there will be no end. So we're going to pick up the story from that point as Mary is encountering this, this angel. So Luke chapter 1. And I want, us, I want to draw our attention to four responses that Mary has as the next chapters unfold of what it looks like to be postured as open-handed in the waiting. Because make no mistake, there is, there is a significant shift going on as Mary gets this news of her miraculous pregnancy, but the waiting is not over. They're still waiting so after the angel tells Mary the extraordinary news of her pregnancy, we read um, her, her almost first response. Her first first response is understandable confusion. But after that is this spoken response. In uh, verse 38, she says, I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May your word to me be fulfilled. And then the angel left her. The J.B. Phillips translation um, of that same verse reads this. I belong to the Lord body and soul. Let it happen as you say. I belong to the Lord, body and soul. We're probably pretty familiar with these words, most of us, because they're often included in the Christmas story, aren't they? But let's not become um, numb to the extraordinary response of obedience found in these words. I belong to the Lord, body and soul, and trust in the one who tells them. Obedience and trust. Why does Mary respond in this way? Have you ever asked yourself that? How, how, what is going on for her as a young woman for her response to be obedience and trust? The only explanation I can arrive at is that this was a young woman who was well acquainted with her God and knew his character and knew his faithfulness and knew something of her, um, the Israelite history of God's promise. Like it seems like she had some kind of mental shelf for what she was being told, that God would be sending a deliverer, God would be sending a restorer. And she knew enough of him to know that he was utterly 
worthy of her trust and therefore her obedience. And another way of thinking about this is that Mary surrendered all control, which is an aspect of being open-handed that John talked about a few weeks ago. She surrendered all control and she could surrender that control willingly because she completely trusted the one to whom she was surrendering. The second response we see from Mary is thankfulness and praise in acknowledgement of the faithfulness of her God in a song known as the Magnificat, which translates to literally mean to magnify. And this is what she said. So this is um, verses 46 to 55. My soul glorifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God my saviour for he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant from now on all generations will call me blessed for the mighty one has done great things for me holy is his name his mercy extends to those who fear him from generation to generation he has performed mighty deeds with his arm he has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts he has brought down rulers from their thrones but has lifted up the humble He's filled the hungry with good things, but has sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever, just as he promised our ancestors. Now, this song is actually in response to what Elizabeth, who is Mary's cousin, says to her. So in the verses just before this, Mary, um, Mary has, so she's received the news from the angel, and then she goes to visit her cousin Elizabeth, who is also miraculously pregnant in her old age. And when Mary enters the home, Elizabeth's baby in her womb, who becomes known as John the Baptist, he leaps in her womb, and which is alerting Elizabeth to the fact that something is going on. Something, something special is going on in this moment. And so she tells Mary in verse 42, blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. Blessed are you among women and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And after Mary Elizabeth blesses her, Mary's response to that was, my soul magnifies the Lord. It's that song of praise. Meaning that her inmost being, everything in her, is exalting God for his faithfulness to her. She's praising God for her personal blessing. That's what those first few lines are about, her story, her personal blessing. But notice that she places it in the wider context of Israel's story. It's actually Israel's blessing. And, and in the wider context of God's really unexpected ways of working. Israel as a nation was often not faithful in its waiting. The books of Judges, of Samuel, of Kings, they show us that time and time again. But Mary along with a scattering of other faithful Israelite remnant, she was faithful in the waiting and she knew that God was faithful in his coming. And her response to his mysterious and surprising way of working, and let's not forget how uh, disorientating this must be for her culturally and socially for her context this would have been completely um, daunting, surely. It must have been. Yet even in that, her response was one of thankfulness and praise. Her response was obedience and trust. And it can be easy to forget as we look back on the benefit with hindsight and we get to tell the Christmas story in about five minutes and we get to move on to the death and resurrection of Jesus in the following 10 minutes. It's easy to forget that for Mary, 
The waiting had actually still really only just begun, this new phase of waiting, because it would be another 30 years before her son would start to begin his ministry, showing people what the kingdom of God was like, showing people that he was the deliverer and the redeemer that was promised. That's a long time to wait, isn't it? It's a long time to wait when actually the answer to your promise is right there in front of you, day in, day out. How does she manage that? How do you do that? In chapter 2 of Luke, verse 19, he records this. Mary treasured all these things, giving careful thought to them and pondering them in her heart. And he writes that in response in, to show Mary's response of when the shepherds came to visit. There's a carol about that, isn't there? Where they're retelling the angels appearing to them on the hillside of proclaiming that the Savior is born. And as she listens to their story, she ponders and she treasures the words that they're saying. There's another time that Mary's uh, response is recorded similar to this. It's, um, it's a chapter or two later in response to Jesus, actually, as a 12-year-old boy. And it's in response to his parents after, um, after having lost him. Can you imagine losing Jesus, man alive? Um, they lost him after leaving Jerusalem. And they thought he was with the, their family group. And after, after they realized he wasn't. And three days they were searching for him. We lost Asaph for, was it about 20 minutes once as a two-year-old? Terrifying. And... Uh, and they were terrified too. Panicked search is one translation. And, uh, and eventually they found Jesus. Still in Jerusalem. Can you imagine the frustration as a parent? You're literally where I left you. Um, they probably didn't say that to him. Um, but they still found him in Jerusalem. He was still in the temple. He was sitting in the temple listening to the teachers and asking them questions as a 12-year-old boy. And when they queried, hey, Jesus, why weren't you with us? We've been in panic search. He says to them, well, why didn't you know to look for me here? Of course I'm in my father's house. Now, surely there must have been some frustration there as a parent. But what Luke records is that Mary treasured that. It caused her to ponder. So twice we have that record of her treasuring and pondering. And that leads me on to... Um, the final response is she waited for her son to become king. And one that I couldn't really think of a better word for than simply to live. Mary lived her life. She and Joseph raised Jesus and the other children that they went on to have together. They raised them um, in the community, learning the Torah, uh, celebrating the rhythms of Jewish um, feasts and festivals, visiting the temple, being taught a trade in order to earn a living. Like there was no inactivity going on in this time of waiting. They got on with life, with all of its joy and its complexity. So what can we learn from these four responses? Advent is a time where we, um, we remember that the waiting isn't finished, don't we? Like Mary, as we find her at this point in the story, the wait for King Jesus to come and return and rule and reign is still ongoing in the here and now. 
But our waiting clearly has one crucial difference to Mary's. For followers of Jesus across the world, Advent is the time of remembering and preparing for the celebration that Jesus has come. Jesus has brought his kingdom. Jesus has shown what his kingdom looks like. And he brought it in a way that no one expected and in a way that some didn't want. And he was killed. And his death and then his resurrection changes our waiting forever. Because the name that was declared over him at birth, Emmanuel, Emmanuel means God with us. That is still true today. He is Emmanuel, he is God with us. It is true for us today as it was 2,000 years ago. Rich Flodus, who um, is one of my favourite authors, uh, he writes this, The good news of Advent is not that we're faithful in our waiting, because we often aren't, but that God is faithful in his coming. God is faithful in his coming. For whatever you find yourself in right now, whatever situation, whatever time of waiting, whatever breakthrough you're holding out for, God is faithful. That was Hannah and Justin's story. God is faithful. The wait was long and the wait was difficult, but God was faithful. That is true for every single one of us for what we're facing. God is faithful in his coming. In that moment when God became flesh, humanity saw prophecies unfold as hope was born. Because hope isn't wishful thinking that circumstances might fall in our favour. Hope is a person. Hope is alive. Because it's Jesus. Jesus is with us. Jesus stays with us. We looked at that the weekend away, didn't we? Stay with us. Stay close. He's faithful in his coming. So I hope we can let that Holy Spirit help let that sink in deeply to us, that for whatever we're facing, he is faithful. He is our ever-present help. He is the one that walks with us every step of the way. And like Mary, my prayer is that in the midst of that, we can be people who are faithful in the waiting, with obedience and with trust, with thankfulness and praise, with hearts that ponder and wonder and are curious and treasure his words to us, and that we live we live our lives in the midst of that. Waiting doesn't immobile us. We live. So as I begin to draw this to a close, I want us to consider then what it might be look like for us to be open-handed in the waiting this way, to one another. So we've looked at open-handed to Jesus, open-handed to one another. And nothing I say here will be new. And actually, Neil Hudson, um, he drew this out amazingly for, at the weekend away. But to, to, um, to take you back to my uh, tearful time at McDonald's, part of the response um, to that time was on that day was, was texting a bunch of close friends to just make explicit what was going on for us. People who already knew most of our story anyway, but maybe hadn't, um, we hadn't quite been honest or opened up to the reality of how we found ourselves in that moment. And then, we, and then we met with people and we talked. 
And that takes vulnerability and honesty, doesn't it? Neil was talking about that last weekend, the vulnerability of disappointment, of showing that to one another. And it takes vulnerability to share our stories, especially when they're a harder story to tell. But as we do, as we do that, we're making a decision to stop building our wall and to show another what's in our hands. And there is power in that because we as people, we have been created, yes, to be in relationship with Jesus, but also to be in relationship with one another, to encourage one another, to love one another, to walk together. We get to do this together, to deal with disappointment together. And if someone comes to us with their hands open, let's take care recognizing that what they're showing is something that is of great value to them and has cost them vulnerability to share. And we get the opportunity to respond, to respond with weeping, to respond with kindness, to respond with the prophetic voice of hope into that situation, to respond with encouragement and to respond with challenge. That's my experience is as I, as I have let people in to the parts of our story, I've experienced Jesus through those people. Because we get to be that for one another. We have the spirit within us. And as we allow our voice to come out and come alongside another story, people encounter Jesus. Isn't that incredible? That's what I've encountered. As I've sat around the tables of friends in anger, in frustration, in tears, in despair, however I find myself, and through their kindness, through their challenge, because I have been challenged, through their feedback, through their prayers, through their hope, courage is given to keep going and to not give up and to keep walking with him and to keep walking together. And though the waiting may remain, we're together in it. Because waiting isn't fixed by circumstances changing. In the waiting, it's about knowing that Jesus is with us and actually as we journey with him, in whatever way that turns out, whether it's as we're hoping for in our waiting or otherwise, he is faithful. He is faithful. He is faithful in his coming. And so in cultivating these responses of upwards to him, outwards to one another, we can knock down any walls that we're building around ourselves that keep us hidden and keep us isolated. And one of the ways, one of the best ways we can do that is by praying together. Because what praying does is, is it gives us an opportunity for both of those postures. Because as we come alongside another, we have to open our hands to show them what's inside. And together, we get to come before Jesus and ask for his grace ask for his wisdom, ask for his hope, ask for his perspective. So this morning, if you find yourself at a point of waiting, there's some part of your life where there is a story of waiting going on and you can recognize that you are or are becoming closed off. Your hands are becoming closed. 
The invitation is there this morning to begin to open up again to one another and to Jesus, which is what this morning has been all about, hasn't it? It's open-handed and open-hearted before Jesus in life with all of its reality so that he can come and speak his hope. He can come and speak his truth. He can come and show us that he is with us and walking with us. Hope you enjoyed today's message. If you want to find out more, head to our website, findlife.co.uk, or follow us on Instagram. God bless, and see you soon.